In this matter of spiritual gifts, we have a tendency. We think that so much of it depends somehow on us, on our receptivity or our uh, how plugged in we are with what God intends to do with us. And as we're going to see, that's not the way it plays out. Paul begins this chapter, chapter 12, 1 Corinthians, by saying, Now concerning spiritual, and the word gifts is not technically there at that point, concerning the spiritual, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. The the adjective spiritual that he uses there is the same one he uses in chapter 14, verse 1, where he is clearly talking about spiritual gifts. And so that's what I take him to be referring to here, and that makes sense because... All the rest of this chapter is about spiritual gifts. The first thing that Paul tells us in the next couple of verses has to do with leading. He says, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the dumb idols, however you were led. And he says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In verse 2, it's actually a very interesting construction in the Greek, if you, if you just follow it without trying to smooth it out. It says, however it was that you were led, oh, excuse me, it says, you know that while you were pagans, toward the mute idols, however it was that you were led, you were led. So the however you were led, you were led is right at the end of the statement. And What I take Paul to be saying is, whatever it was that determined your actions, you were led by something. When you were pagans, you were not under your own control. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, he says, The God of this world blinds the minds of the unbelieving to the light of the gospel. In Exodus, God is the one who hardened the heart of Pharaoh. In Isaiah 6, God is the one who blinded the eyes and deafened the ears of his own people for a time. Somebody is having an influence on you at all times, whether you acknowledge it or not. Every person is being led by someone. And many uh, many people today see themselves as self-determined. In fact, in the Western culture, we pride ourselves on self-determination. Many people believe that they are entirely objective in their decision-making, that they are not influenced by external forces. I believe what Paul is asserting in these few verses is that such people are de- deluded There is a spiritual battle raging around us and in us all the time, and the forces on both sides of that battle are more powerful than we are. However it is that we are led, we are led. Paul goes on and he says, No one speaking by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It's only by the compelling influence of the Spirit of God that any of us ever comes to be regenerate, that any of us ever comes to proclaim 
the name of Jesus Christ and to follow Him as Lord. Now, how does this whole matter of leading that Paul presents in the first three verses tie in with the rest of 1 Corinthians 12? Well, that connection is a critical one. We who proclaim Christ as Lord and who follow Him as Lord do all of that by the work of the Spirit in us. And as Paul's about to make very clear, the work of the Spirit is not a work that's done merely in the hearts of individual saints. It is a work that brings individual saints together into one body. It's the work of Him who is the preeminent instrument maker and symphony conductor who takes every single redeemed saint and turns him into a finely tuned instrument and then brings him together with other saints to produce a unified and harmonious whole that is far greater than the sum of its individual parts. In verses 4 through 6, Paul says, now there are varieties of gifts But there is one Spirit. He says, the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all in all. Now the word effects in verse 6 is the noun form of the same word that is applied to God in the last clause of that same statement. The same God who works all things in all. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but if you're looking for a translation that consistently shows in the English when a word is used the same way in the Greek more than once or in the Hebrew, look at the 1901 American Standard Version. If you can stand the, the Old English, the King James English style, it's a great study tool because it shows you it's very consistent in its translation. Here's ASV translation to verse 6. It says, There are diversities of workings, but the same God who worketh all things in all. It's the same word. Every spiritual gift that's given to every individual believer, every legitimate work of ministry, every outworking of godliness is the work of one and the same Holy Spirit in every believer. We are merely vessels of His marvelous work. As the chapter proceeds, Paul reiterates that critical truth. In verse 11 he says, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. It's all Him. It's not us. In verse 18 he says, Now God has placed the members each one of them in the body, just as He desired. Just as He wills. Just as He desired. He's orchestrating all of it. There's one person doing all the work in this chapter. The Holy Spirit. Not you and I and the Holy Spirit. Just the Holy Spirit. There are many works, but there's only one worker. He determines each gift, He gives each gift, and He uses each gift by the power of His indwelling presence in each believer. It would be hard to envision a more central, more critical, more determinative principle 
in the believer's life and walk than this. If we don't get this right, this simple proposition, we'll get the whole issue of spiritual gifts wrong. And unfortunately, that happens a lot. And here's an important corollary to that principle. The one who does all these diverse works that are distributed among all believers is the one who creates unity out of that diversity that he created. That which unites us is not fundamentally a message, although we are united in the proclamation of the gospel. That which unites us is fundamentally a person. Gary and Kim and Charlie, Mike, each of them is indwelled by the same Holy Spirit who indwells you if you belong to Jesus Christ. And that's what unites us. He is the one who brings us together and makes us one. His presence is indispensable to everything that we know about what it means to be a believer. We who are individually bearers of one and the same Holy Spirit are enabled by Him to act as one even though we are vastly different people with vastly different gifts that He has given to us. And so in Ephesians 4, as Paul lays out for us what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling... In Jesus Christ, he exhorts us to be diligent to preserve what? The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The incomparable unity that results because we have the same Spirit dwelling in each of us. Now, because God designed his church this way, there are no spectators God has given a gift by the Holy Spirit to each individual. Verse 7, 1 Corinthians 12 says, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And in the next few verses, he then lists several of the gifts that the Holy Spirit imparts to believers. The Greek participle there in verse 7 that's translated the common good means the better. It means that which is more profitable. To each and every individual believer, the Holy Spirit gives specific gifts, a gift or gifts, for a profitable purpose. For a purpose that gives a better outcome than would be the case if he didn't do it this way. In verses 11 through 14, Paul says, One and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each individually just as he wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. See, the Spirit's purpose in distributing a variety of gifts, different gifts to different individual believers, is not to make us independent agents of the Son. It's to make us 
interdependent parts of one agent. Let me say that again. God's purpose in giving spiritual gifts is not to make us independent agents of his son. It is to make us interdependent parts of one agent. And that agent is the body of Christ. It's his church. God designed the church this way in order to ensure that we have to work together rather than separately in order to carry on with the work of Jesus Christ on this earth. He's still working. He's still here. And Ray Stedman's great commentary on Hebrews, what more can God say? Stedman says, Jesus is as really and as fully here today as he was when he walked the earth, but he is here today in the presence of his body, which is his church. He's still working. He's still here to seek and save that which was lost, and he's doing it through the body that he created. In short, God creates a diversity of gifts in his church in order to create unity in his church. It is the diversity that makes us interdependent rather than independent. And that's a beautiful, that is a beautiful reality that we struggle with because it's not the way things usually work. Next week, by the way, we're going to focus on that miracle of unity that comes from diversity. Not in spite of diversity, but because of diversity. And it is a miracle, guys. (laughs) God could easily have given all of the gifts to every believer, in which case we could all just act independently and make sure all the bases were covered. He could have given all of the gifts to a small group of believers in each local body, which would set those few apart from the rest. They would be the runners and the rest of us would be the spectators cheering them on. And unfortunately, there are many churches that act as if that was God's design for His church. But in the divine genius of God, He chose to spread the gifts out among all believers, every single believer, so that the contribution of every single saint would be vitally important to the function of the whole body. Beloved, no matter how old you are or how young you are, if you are not carrying out your God-ordained role in the local body, exercising the gift or gifts that He has given to you, then the body has a hole in it. It has an important part missing. If you think that's not the case, then you're missing the very essence of what Paul is saying in this critical passage. See, he's saying, you want to understand how the church works according to God's perfect design? Look at how your physical body works. If you take a part out of it, what happens? Now, this is one of those cases in which we tend to confuse the metaphor with the reality. We do that a lot. God tells us that the church is the body of Christ and that every single member of the body is critical to the functioning of the whole, just as is the case with your physical body. And so we think, well, isn't it interesting to think of the church in those terms, to compare it to a human body? It's a helpful picture. Guys, it's a whole lot more than a helpful picture. When God calls the church the body of Christ, that's not a picture. It's an organic reality after which your human body is patterned. 
The body of Christ is the transcendent, preeminent reality. This is the metaphor. So when Paul tells us in verses 14 to 26 that every member, every part of the human body is critical to the function of the rest and that no member can say to another member, I have no need for you or I'm not as valuable as you. These things that he's asserting about the physical body explain to us vitally important truths about the far greater reality of Christ's body, His church. These are things we must not relegate to the realm of interesting word pictures. This is actually how the church works. This is how Jesus Christ continues to do His work on earth until He comes back and until He returns to judge the world and to claim His bride, His body, with whom He Himself is one flesh. There are no spectators in that design and there are no standouts in that design. Paul devotes all of 1 Corinthians 12 verses 12 through 26 to this important point. There are no standouts. It's pretty clear in these verses that the church at Corinth had a tendency to give greater honor to those who manifested certain spiritual gifts. And they looked down on those who didn't have uh, those high-profile gifts. And if you follow Paul's teaching on this theme all the way through chapter 14, it becomes pretty apparent that one of the gifts the Corinthians badly oversold was tongues. But Paul decisively shoots down the Corinthians' man-centered prioritization of gifts by pointing them again to the earthly picture of the body in which each of them was walking around. (laughs) He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? And if they were all one member, where would the body be? The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I have no need of you. And then Paul declares that by God's way of reckoning, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are necessary and that we are to bestow more abundant honor on the parts that we tend to consider less worthy of honor. Verses 22 and 23. See, the call here is for us to contradict our tendencies. Our presuppositions. The call is for us to very intentionally pour out honor upon those members of the body that we don't tend to deem as honorable and to back away from making such a show about those gifts that we tend to get excited about. Do we do that? Verse 24 says, God gives more abundant honor to those from whom we, with our misdirected priorities, tend to withhold it. And he tells us in verses 25 and 26 his purpose again in doing things this way. He says that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. 
And he says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. By the way, in verse 26, when he says, if one member suffers, I don't believe he's talking about a member of the body of Christ suffering at the hands of someone outside the body, suffering persecution or something. I believe he's talking about that member suffering at the hands of those who are inside the body. Because what he's talking about here is dishonor within the body of Christ. He's saying that the reality is if one, if one member suffers dishonor at the hands of his fellow saints, the whole body suffers dishonor. So if you dishonor your brother or sister, you are dishonoring yourself. And when one member is appropriately honored and cared for by his fellow saints, we all share together in, and rejoice in that honor. What happens to one of us happens to all of us. And when we get that reality and we act on it, there is no division in the body. There's a marvelous unity because we are one. Do we do this? Do we intentionally back off from drawing attention to those spiritual gifts we're already prone to exalt (laughs) and instead make a deliberate effort to lift up those whose spiritual gifts are less visible and less prone to be noticed? It looks to me like that's what Paul is saying we're supposed to do. You may differ with me, but that's what it looks to me like he's saying. The shut-in widow who prays fervently for the needs of the saints and for God's work through the body should have the same kind of honor that the troops on the ground in a battle give to the pilot whose air support drives back an approaching enemy and makes the way for them to advance up the hill. How do we show such a person more abundant honor? Well, how about praying for her diligently? Sending her cards and notes. How about making sure she gets visited as often as she can stand it? How about something we just proposed recently? We're looking for someone to champion the idea of going to shut-ins in our body, whether they're temporarily kept from coming or permanently kept from coming taking the Lord's Supper to them on at least a monthly basis. Some of those folks are the ones that pray the hardest. We should see those who quietly exercise gifts of mercy or helps or service as absolutely indispensable to the work that Jesus brought us together to accomplish. If you have a very visible gift that tends to get you lots of pats on the back, you should be very intentionally mindful of those dear brothers and sisters who don't get that kind of attention. And you should be mindful of of the fact that they do certain things way, way better than you ever could because of the gifts that God has given to them. My wife has the gift of mercy, and when I grow up, I want to be like her.
Verses 27 to 31 throw in uh, sort of a wrench in the works that takes a little effort to understand. Uh, Paul says, earnestly desire the greater gifts. And we go, wait a minute. You've just been saying there aren't any. Let me try to make sense of this. He says, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it, verse 27. Then he says, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. I'll say the second half of that verse for later, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. Now, what is he talking about? Sounds like it contradicts what he was just saying. Well, first, the list of gifts in verses 28 to 30 is not comprehensive. It doesn't mention every gift that Paul mentions in other passages. Uh, and there's no passage that does put them all together in one place. Paul's whole point here is not to present us a comprehensive set of spiritual gifts and to order them from most important to least important. I believe in this context that what Paul is simply doing here is he's turning from the subject of the Holy Spirit's design and purpose for distributing gifts among all believers to a more focused topic of how gifts are to be used within the context of corporate worship because that's what chapter 14 is all about. Look for a moment in in your Bible at verses 27 to 31, especially verse 31, and then look at chapter 14, verse 1. It says, Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And then go to chapter 14 at the end, verse 39. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. That, that verb, that command, desire earnestly, comes up three times. Each time it's talking about desiring certain gifts over other gifts. And the two times it names a gift, a gift it says prophecy is the one you should be desiring. Well, if you read the rest of chapter 14, which we'll give attention to either next time or the time after that, you'll see that in the Corinthian church there was a big interplay between prophecy and tongues and how those two came into the worship, the corporate, the experience of corporate worship. I believe what Paul is doing here is actually pretty straightforward. He's driving home to the Corinthians and to us that their prioritization of spiritual gifts was misguided, especially the priority that they placed on tongues and on the practice of that particular gift in the context of corporate worship. Because he said the one, chapter 14, the one who prays in tongues edifies himself, not the body. But when you come together corporately, you should do the things that edify and build up the body. And so it's interesting in his list his hierarchy, he puts prophecy second from the top after apostleship, and he puts tongues second from the bottom. All right, enough on that. I believe essentially Paul is saying to the whole body of believers at Corinth, earnestly desire when you come together to worship 
the gifts that most enhance worship and build up everyone, not just those individuals who are exercising them. Uh, I believe that's what he's getting at in that earnestly desire the greater gifts thing. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about some common questions that I've heard and most of you have heard about spiritual gifts. First, a simple question of fact, which spiritual gifts are explicitly mentioned in the New Testament? Well, here's a chart. I want you to memorize this. We'll have a pop quiz at the end. There are 15 gifts mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 in Romans 12, and 5 in Ephesians 4. There's some overlap between those. Uh, But that's the list. If you want that slide, I'll be happy to give it to you. I want to talk first about a couple of questions that we don't need answered regarding these gifts. The one fundamental truth that we saw right at the beginning of this passage, that there are many outworkings of the Holy Spirit, but there's only one worker, the Holy Spirit, changes a whole lot of our discussion about this matter of spiritual gifts if we're paying attention. See, we have a bad habit of persistently asking questions to which God has not given us answers. And it really bugs us when we find out he hasn't answered them. But he has perfectly good reasons for not giving us those answers. And that reason, the primary reason is directly tied to that fundamental truth that we started with. Track with me, and I think you'll see what I'm talking about. Here's a very popular question that we don't need answered. What is the precise definition, the job description for each spiritual gift? You know what? God doesn't tell us. Paul mentions 15 gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 in Romans 12, and 5 in Ephesians 4. There are a few other passages that may throw in another gift or two, but you know what Paul has to say about the definitions of those gifts? Pretty much nothing. He just lists them, and he leaves it at that. It's very disappointing, isn't it? Why wouldn't he tell us more? Because we don't need to know more. If the Holy Spirit determines our gifts, gives us the gifts, and puts the gifts to use in us by his power... Where's the big urgency for us to get exhaustive definitions? You only need a good job description if you're the one doing the work. The second question that we don't need answered answered is, which gift do you have? Now, this will, I know I'll get pushback on this, but bear with me for a second. First, I want to mention a couple of other kind of corollary things here that you might not expect. Some of you will, but... One of those is that your spiritual gift might actually be more than one. Paul, for instance, clearly had the gift and the calling of apostleship, and God used him to perform miracles. There's two manifestations of the Spirit, not of Paul. And it was clear that he was used very effectively by God as a teacher and as a preacher, even though by his own accounting he wasn't a very good preacher. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, it looks a whole lot to me like Paul is writing in the role of a prophet, declaring things that will happen in the latter days. That's four different gifts in one person. 
One of the things that seems consistent also uh, with the outworking of various manifestations of the Spirit found throughout both Testaments is that they are more dynamic than they are static. This is a, this is a one, one we have a hard time getting our hands around, and that's okay. But the pouring out of gifts on God's saints seems to be often more about the specific need that he has set before them in that period of time than it is about something that is always true of them. If you look at the account of Bezalel and Aholiab in Exodus 31, God took these two men and it says he poured his spirit out on them and he gave them extraordinary skill to create the tabernacle and the priestly garments and the furnishings and all the stuff that God, that came from the mind of God, not from the minds of men, to represent the heavenly reality. Another thing is that your spiritual gifts may very well not have anything at all to do with your natural strengths and talents. Let's get to the question itself. What is my gift? And how do I figure that out? Well, if you plug the words spiritual gifts test into Google, you get 3,990,000 hits. I took some time and looked at some of those tests, somewhat fewer than a million of them. And I got to tell you, I had to laugh at the questions. Most of the tests had more than a hundred questions each. It's like an MMPI for those of you who are old enough to remember what that is. They were all about the test taker's preferences and skills and interests and propensities. None of which have anything to do with God's determination of your gift. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5, through 5, Paul says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, in order that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. See, God has a very, very good reason for not basing our gifts on our talents. Because He wants to demonstrate Him, not us. It doesn't sound like Paul would have done very well with the spiritual gifts inventory. In Exodus chapter 3 and 4, after God told Moses that he was going to get to be God's point man for going back to Egypt and freeing his people from 400 years of bondage, did God give Moses a spiritual gifts test? Did he say, okay, Moses, I'd love to use you for this very important task, but first let's see if you're qualified. Here's question one. Let me hear you say a few words for me in your loudest, most fearsome voice so I can see if Pharaoh's likely to be impressed enough with you to release a couple of million slaves and put his whole economy at risk. Question two. How do you feel about confronting a guy who has the power to take your life in a New York minute? Question three, in 15 words or less, describe to me your last miracle. 
You're going to have to do some pretty big miracles, Moses, to pull this job off, so I need to see how good you are at them. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Because that's all about man, and none of this is about man. None of it. Here's what actually happened. After God told Moses about his rather daunting assignment, Moses said to him, Lord, can you find somebody else? He said, I'm not eloquent at all. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. And God's response to Moses is very, very instructive. In effect, God said to him, Moses, Moses, who made your mouth? God does not need your talent. He does not need your life experience. He does not need your skill. He does not need your predispositions to put you to use. All he needs is the indwelling Holy Spirit. You know what makes you adequate as a servant of God under the new covenant? God. Period. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6. I've told it to you before. If there's a life verse for me, that's it. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I wouldn't be here if that weren't true. All of this points us back to the one simple foundation of everything the New Testament tells us about spiritual gifts, and that is this. It is the Holy Spirit who determines your gift. It is the Holy Spirit who gives you your gift. And it is the Holy Spirit who uses your gift by His indwelling presence and power. You have nothing to do with it except to just yield. (laughs) There are many works, but there is only one worker. Another question that has been the foundation for book after book after book is which gifts is the Holy Spirit still giving? Many believers seem to be consumed with determining whether some spiritual gifts might have been limited to the time when the church was first being established and might not still be given by God. Perhaps the gift of apostleship or miracles or healings or even the gift of prophecy. I've looked at many arguments that say they defend the ceasing, the end of certain gifts. And I I just got to tell you, I don't find them well supported from Scripture. And by the way, an argument from silence is not a compelling argument. Pointing out that James says that healing happens when elders come together and pray for the sick does not prove that God no longer heals through individuals. Pointing out that tongues are not mentioned in later written epistles does not prove that tongues have ceased. The only gift that I think might have been limited to the period of the founding of the church is apostleship. And I I believe that mostly because of this passage. Because when Paul lists his hierarchy, one of the top of the hierarchy is apostleship. And every other time after that, when he talks about the greatest gift, he talks about the second one in the list, which is prophecy. Anyway, I don't know. And I don't have to know. You know why I don't have to know? Because what I know doesn't determine anything about how God uses the gifts that he gives to Do you think that the apostles on the day of Pentecost expected what happened? 
Do you think they expected tongues of fire to come and dance on their heads and they would be able to speak in languages they had never learned? There's no forewarning in Scripture. It happened because God made it happen. And that's how the manifestations of the Spirit play out. We need to quit worrying about questions that God hasn't answered. There's a reason He hasn't answered them. There's a couple of questions we do need answered. I'll try to make this quick. First, uh, what if I think I have a particular gift, but I have it wrong? Won't that mess up what God intended to do with me? The answer in one word is no, it won't. Some believers are reluctant to enter into any particular work of ministry for fear that they're acting outside of God's calling and enablement. Guys, relax. If you want it to be useful to God, you can be absolutely sure he's the one who's going to make you useful. We give ourselves far, far too much credit for somehow determining what God does and doesn't do through us. By the way, if you want a compelling look at the kind of joy that pervades a believer's life when he finally figures out how little he matters to God's program through him, read the book Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. I read it when I was in seminary, and it was revolutionary to me. All right, second question that we need an answer to, what should I be doing to use my gift even if I'm not sure yet what it is? <laughs> We've, I hope, established I don't have to know what it is for God to use it. So, so what do I need to be doing? What's my part in all this? I believe God has clearly revealed his answer to that. And I believe the essence of it is the whole of chapter 13. After he talked about earnestly desiring greater gifts at the end of 12, he said, I, I show you a still more excellent way. There's something that puts everything that Paul has told us about spiritual gifts into just the right balance, something that absolutely determines whether your gifts will be used rightly or abused by you. doesn't mean God won't do his thing, but... There's something that's more excellent, more worthy, more valuable for the edification of the body of Christ than any of the gifts that Paul's been talking about. And most of you already know what that one thing is. In one word. What is it? It's love. It's, it's Paul's focus in all of chapter 13, which is perhaps the greatest passage about the nature of godly love in the whole Bible. By the way, you know what the greatest demonstration of God's love is, right? The cross. Romans 5, 8. John three sixteen. <laughs> God's answer here, what should you be doing, is very, very important, and it's everything fundamentally that you need to know. And that is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbors yourself. In Matthew 22, Jesus said, that's the fulfillment of the law. Paul said, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. It's no coincidence, guys, that the chapter 
of Corinthians that's known as the love chapter is inserted right in the middle of Paul's instruction about how spiritual gifts are to be rightly used in the life of the body. And it's no coincidence that the, that love is the governing principle in both of the other passages that focus strongly on spiritual gifts. In Ephesians 4, right after Paul says, I urge you, brethren, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, verse 2 says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And he says, there's one spirit, there's one body, there's one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he talks about gifts. Verse 15, he says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Romans 12, verses 9 and 10, right after Paul talks about spiritual gifts in verses 3 3 through 8, he says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Beloved, let's quit worrying about pinning down who has which gift and exactly what each gift consists of. Let's abandon any comparisons between one believer and another when it comes to usefulness to God. And let's focus instead on putting into practice that which is crystal clear. Whether you know exactly what your gifts are, this much you do know. You are called to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And you are called to love your neighbor as yourself. The second proceeds from the first. And if we are doing those things, we'll be far too busy to worry about stuff God hasn't told us. Loving Father... We pray that you would make these things uh, very evident in our hearts. We know that your gifting is an integral part of how the body is supposed to work. It's indispensable. It is. It defines how the body works, Lord. And so we want to get it right. So we pray that you would just bring us back over and over to that which you had said, not to what we wish you had said and that we would joyfully submit to it and be used together to carry on the work of our Savior and Master. It's in his name we pray. Amen.